Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll 29. 29. Three, two, one. Can't operate under these conditions, boy. You're not working without. It's like that we're like we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And this is what we're going through now, really. discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. I've received another email. This one's from Mark Stewart. Hello Nick. Really enjoying your podcast. A great addition to the Beatles knowledge. Have yet to actually go through the Nagra stuff and probably won't. So your curation of it is all wonderful. Also a lovely companion to Peter Jackson's opus. One thing you were wondering about. I think at the end of episode 33, was Paul mentioning a Jim Garetti, or some such name. You speculated it may be a goon's character, I think. I'm wondering if he was referencing Jim Gretti, who was a musician and salesperson at Hesse's Music in Liverpool, where many of the bands shopped for gear. And as Jim was a jazz guy, chords as well. On my second trip to the UK in 1990, I went to Hesse's as it was where Aunt Mimi bought John his first guitar. There I purchased a black Rickenbacker 330, not John's Rick model, but it looked close to me at the time, much to my dad's chagrin. He checked and found that I could get the same instrument much cheaper in Vancouver, but I was determined to get it at Hesse's where the Beatles shopped. Couldn't afford the case, so they threw in a giant old bass case that wouldn't close, which I lugged back to London by train, then the tube to airport and back to Canada. My favourite thing about all this, though, is that John referred to Jim Gretty as Grim Jetty. Any road, thanks for your work. Best for the holidays ahead and hope all well there. Mark Stewart, Vancouver, BC, Canada. He sent me a link to Beatlesjourney.com, which gives me further biographical detail. It says here, 
1956, Frank Hesse asked Jim if he would demonstrate the guitar to potential purchasers at his guitar centre, known as Hesse's, situated on 62 Stanley Street on the corner of Whitechapel and across the way from NEMS. John Lennon purchased his first acoustic guitar from Hesse's. In 1957, however, it was Jim Gretti that sold the guitar to John Lennon's Aunt Mimi for the sum of £17. Jim managed the Jim Gretti Variety Agency where, according to his advert in the Merseybeat newspaper, produced by Mr Bill Harry, on the 14th of May to the 21st of June 1962, he booked variety bands and artists for all occasions. Next to Jim's advert was a photo of Pete Best advertising an article on the Beatles, page 6. Frank Hesse knew intuitively that Jim Gretti would make a fine guitar salesman, and so in 1956 he began part-time at weekends. But soon he became full-time at Hesse's. John Lennon's name for him was Grim Jetty. He gave instructions to would-be guitarists, showing them how to play guitar boogie, and everyone wanted to learn Jim's so-called jazz chord, including Paul McCartney and George Harrison. Jim began to sell guitars like hotcakes, but the problem was no one knew how to play, so Gretti began teaching them on a Monday night, attracting about 30 to 40 youngsters, all keen to start up their own skiffle bands. Now it says here that Paul and George used to refer to this as the Gretti chord. Jim Gretti showed Harrison and McCartney the chord shape. Being unschooled musicians, they didn't know that the chord in question was a dominant seventh with a sharp ninth. The chord has a distinctive sound due to the clash of the minor third with the major third. In the case of Michel, the chord is B flat seventh sharp ninth. The chord can be heard on the words Ma Belle at 11 seconds. Here the vocal melody moves from D flat 5 to A flat 4, referencing the sharp ninth and minor seventh of the chord. The Gretti chord also makes an appearance at the end of George Harrison's solo, 1 minute and 21 seconds into Till There Was You, from 1963. In this case, the chord is a G flat 7 sharp ninth. Jim Gretti will certainly be remembered for his jazz chord by many musicians and his help and guidance to countless youngsters over the years. They've made Jim a very well-loved and respected man. Many a local pop star from Liverpool from those in the skiffle era to the present day, oh, Jim Gretti, a very big vote of thanks. He died in 1992. Welcome back to January 8th, 1969. The Beatles have an hour or so's work to do before lunch, and we'll be joining them very shortly. As usual, I have a podcast recommendation. My new favourite thing, in fact. Give me some truth. Obadiah Jones has created a brilliant Beatles Mythbuster podcast. The level of research far exceeds anything I've achieved so far, and it's this level of detail that the Beatles story so richly deserves. Want to know what really happened in 1968 when Ringo left the Beatles? This is where you'll find the answer. Highly recommended. As I record this, Season 5 hasn't yet launched, so it's a pleasant surprise to find a donation on buymeacoffee.com. Thank you to Pamela for your generous contribution. If you'd like to support the show, leave a comment and a donation. Please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash wodpod, W-O-D-P-O-D. It's just a one-off tip if you like, not a subscription. The link is also in the description. The Beatles have had a productive start to the day. 
So let's have a brief recap of episode 38. On reflection, the presence of George Martin this morning may have inspired what is about to follow. He can be seen in the Let It Be film looking on as the Beatles run through the material they have so far. After the morning small talk and George's attempts to interest his bandmates in his new song, I Me Mine, Paul calls for the band to start work. We hear Paul warming up with a bluesy bass line that reminds John of the Barkay's soul finger, but Yoko disagrees. Before joining in, George asks Kevin for another cushion to sit on. The blue cushion becomes a symbol later on in the sessions. George starts singing in the background, but his mic isn't on. He's referencing Marvin Gaye's Hitchhike, which gets mutated by Paul into a song about French fries, which of course at the time the English only knew of as chips. This jam then evolves into a brief cover of Johnny Burnett's Honey Hush. As this winds down, John breaks into a rendition of Stand By Me, but his mic is also not switched on. Paul's voice dominates as he turns the song into a mock, operatic version. As this ends, Paul asks, Shall we do one? John replies, Shaking in the 60s. A reference we now know to a book about cocktails. It appears to have a connection with the music publisher Dick James and former Beatle accountant Harry Pinsker in Paul's mind. He then sings Pinsker's name to the tune of the Hare Krishna mantra. Paul and John decide to play Standing Up this morning. Paul calls for them to run through two of us. They turn in a competent instrumental performance, though the lyrics are completely mastered. John is happy with the performance. Paul calls for You Got Me Going, which may have been an earlier title for I've Got a Feeling. No one knows what he means, however. Paul then calls for Don't Let Me Down. Once again, the song is instrumentally well played, but the vocals need work. Next up, Paul calls for I've Got a Feeling, which is the best performance so far. Paul is audibly excited by this. Despite having made good progress in five days, John is sarcastic about their slow work rate, joking with George Martin. Paul then calls for the one after 909. Again, is a competent performance, barring a breakdown where, once again, John forgets what to play through the solo. John, inspired by this vintage original, breaks into two more Lennon McCartney oldies, Too Bad About Sorrows and Just Fun. George, looking for the list of songs, asks, Where's the paper? John thinking he means the newspaper and making reference to an article on the stiff penalties for marijuana use that George had referred to earlier makes a quip that will appear on the Let It Be album. Queen says no to pot-smoking FBI members. George reads off the list of songs, adding John's She Said, She Said on the end. John obliges with a brief performance of his 1966 song. Paul calls for All Things Must Pass. Ringo suggests Bathroom Window. Paul appeases him by saying they'll do it after. In retrospect, Bathroom Window would have kept the momentum going, as it is a more finished song. George and Paul discuss what the title of Paul's song should be and John asks for the organ to be turned on for him. Paul picks out the tune on the bass that could be MacArthur Park, but all the same it might not be. John asks how to get the swirling tone on the organ. Paul and George explain what to do. John wonders how this will work on the live show if he has to set the organ tone every time. 
George would like all the songs so far rehearsed to be recorded. Glenn says he's nearly ready to do just that. And so, after a very positive start, the Beatles begin work on All Things Must Pass. And this is where we rejoin them. Paul continues with the MacArthur Park inspired tune. George joins in appearing to recognise it. Paul sings some improvised words about young Delilah, perhaps inspired by the song Dear Delilah by Apple Records group Grapefruit, released in 1968, but that's pure speculation on my part. It's John who stops the band procrastinating for a change. John is impatient to get going, perhaps not wanting to lose the momentum of the morning's work. Hit it! Hit it what? You could come in on the second one, and Ringo could come in on the third one, which would be the first line of the first verse. George begins the intro to All Things Must Pass after a brief discussion with Paul. George suggests Paul come in first, then Ringo comes in when the vocal starts. Paul and Ringo do as directed. Everyone remembers their parts up to the middle section. George stops the performance. He's not happy with the harmonies. Yes, Although he has difficulty articulating this. He says... It's like a country tune, and the harmony is like the sure to fall harmony, the Carl Perkins tune that they've jammed on previously. Impatient, John starts panting into the mic. Paul offers a suggestion to start the song with the chorus. All things must pass away. From there, you mean? Start it from there. Going. 
tape cuts, so we never find out what George thought of this. Slate 141, take 1, 10 to 12. Going off the air to put new batteries in, Roy. Interesting announcement. The two Nagra machines run off batteries. The comment is made to Roy Mingay, who is the boom operator. 37 at the time of recording, Roy had a number of television and film credits to his name. All in the field of sound recording. From boom operator to sound maintenance, he worked on Alan Wicker's TV series Wicker's World, as well as the horror movies Paranoia, starring Jeanette Scott and Oliver Reed. The Gorgon with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee and Roman Polanski's film Manhunt starring Donald Pleasance and would go on from this project to work on the Battle of Britain film with Michael Caine. A camera roll 73, slate 142, camera A. But if you bring the group in, then we should, you know, like how we were doing it, all, with it all on our line, sounds like the sort of the group version to me. Yeah. Yeah. I like it, I like to get it. But that line, it just, I don't know what it is, a line. It's just not, it's not right, you know. George would still prefer to do the song on acoustic. Paul assumes he means on his own. George would like to do the song with the band, but he isn't happy with how John and Paul's backing vocals sound. Paul thinks the title should be enhanced with other vocals, or as he puts it, brought out. suggesting George could play the song as a solo performance he says it's a bit of a George interjects drag Paul clarifies it's a bit of a thing for you to do i.e. daunting John thinks the song could act as an hors d'oeuvre for the rest of the show George goes back over an earlier idea of the backing vocals holding a long note on the word pass
George and Paul work on this idea together, leaving John out of the harmony for now. I was just getting out of that though, going up was just getting off, you all know. John asks, what is he singing, and does a fair job of playing his part on the organ. George suggests a lower harmony part for John. argues that his high harmony has to move with the vocal. Yeah. 
be the note you say. is struggling to keep Lucy in tune again. Now we find out that George is still following Paul's suggestion of beginning on the chorus. Yeah, it's like that, the other one, but no, somehow it like makes it into shorter form or yeah. something. Ringo doesn't participate. The whole thing seems very lacking in enthusiasm. Sync slate one four three one four three camera A. George suggests John move from organ to piano instead. George is away from the mic, but he's explaining his reasons for wanting John on piano. He's saying if he plays the song on acoustic, he'd want an acoustic piano accompanying him.
John runs through the chords on piano, but he wonders how they'll mic it up on the day. George is running through the song with John by the piano so we can barely hear the vocal. Tape cuts. John is running through the chords on piano. George is discussing some chord inversions with John to change the sound of what he's playing. Tape cuts again. George says, The general idea of it is all right. John says, have a pet pill and find out. George is being very cagey over this subject. 
you can't really just tell anyone. Full credit for this next bit needs to go to Joe Gooden and his book, Riding So High. By the way that George and John are speaking in such couched tones, well at least George is, the Beatles hadn't lost their fondness for stimulants despite having graduated to other types of drug in later years. The Beatles discovered speed in the form of German brandy prescription stimulant Preludin in 1961. It was the singer, guitarist and sometime Beatle collaborator Tony Sheridan who introduced them to the drug to get them through the long nights playing on the Reaper Barn in Hamburg. As former drummer Pete Best put it, There were nights when our spirits flagged and eyelids drooped, and it was on one such night that Tony Sheridan held out a helping hand with words, Here's something to keep you awake. Sold as a slimming aid, but allegedly without the dangerous side effects of amphetamines, on prescription only in small metal tubes of 20 pills, Preludin very quickly became widely available on the black market. In fact, the main connection for Preludin was toilet attendant Rosa Hoffman. In the 60s, at the time that the Beatles were there, Rosa took various young musicians she encountered under her wing and always made sure that she had a plentiful supply of the little metal tubes. Taking stimulants in German society at the time was not frowned upon. Nielsa Kirchhoff, mother of Astrid, the ex-artist who was in a relationship with their bassist Stuart, had her own supply from an understanding pharmacist. As Ringo points out, We never thought we were doing anything wrong. We'd always get really wild and go on for days. The drug, being an appetite suppressant, was also handy. The Beatles were skinny enough when they left Liverpool, but after three months in Hamburg, they looked positively malnourished, but there wasn't much money from their wages left to spend on food. Not that every member of the band partook. Sure, Stuart, John and George had no qualms about artificially boosting their energy, but Paul was cautious. His father, having been a musician in his youth, knew the score. I'd been forewarned. Drugs and pills, watch out, right? So in Hamburg, when the Preludin came around, I was probably the last one to have it. It was, oh, I'll stick to beer, thanks. At the time, it just felt like I was being a sissy, and that was the attitude that prevailed. Under this kind of peer pressure, Paul did eventually relent, but never to the same degree as the others. The others, that is excluding Pete Best. Always the odd man out, Pete would never take pills. He was athletic and enjoyed staying fit, but this was not without its downside and at the end of a particularly long session Pete might be known to occasionally falter during a performance. This led McCartney to accuse him of falling asleep mid-song. Pete's card was being marked by the rest of the group even this early on. For John and George the pill consumption became excessive and the adverse effects of several nights without sleep exacerbated by booze led to some erratic behaviour. According to George the down adverse effects of drinking preludins where you'd be up for days were that you'd start hallucinating and getting a bit weird. John would sometimes get on edge. He'd come in in the early hours of the morning and be ranting. One story goes that John found Paul in bed with a local girl and proceeded to cut her clothes into pieces. When the Beatles returned home to Liverpool, so did the preludin and ever the evangelists for this wonder drug encouraged others in their circle to take them. Amongst them, Bob Wooler and even Brian Epstein. John Lennon confessed, I introduced him to Bills to make him talk to find out what he's like. Back in Liverpool, 
care of local supplier Judd the Pill, the Beatles graduated from preludin to amphetamines such as Purple Hearts and Black Bombers. And so it went on. The Beatles continued taking stimulants well beyond their Hamburg days, using pet pills to get them through the long Beatlemania days of touring, recording, press conferences, public appearances, photographic sessions and interviews. The exuberance, so often on display, a positive side effect of the drugs they were taking, was the exact quality that seduced and delighted fans around the world. John offers an E note for George to tune to. George finally rejects starting with the chorus. cuts and we miss this performance well if you are yeah if you are you behind better it's just uh, it's not really standard it's, no, it's just, just behind the back yeah but it's random too it happens differently every time paul and george discuss how the vocal in the chorus lags behind the beat they're obviously having trouble keeping in sync john suggests the backing vocal just goes ah to sort out this issue George wants them to resolve on the all things must pass away line. John wants to know what his part will be. Interestingly, though he may lack Paul's technique on the piano, John can easily pick out the notes of the vocal melody by ear.
George is saying something about the canteen, but it's difficult to decipher. It is near lunchtime. This is roll 74 wild. breaks into me Mr Mustard once he's found the key. This was first demoed at George's house Kinforns in May of 1968. Mr Mustard's sister is still called Shirley at this point. in the Daily Mirror of the 7th of June 1967 told the story of a miserly 65-year-old Scotsman who was so tight-fisted his wife was suing him for divorce. His name was John Alexander Mustard. The name clearly struck a chord with John Lennon who wrote a tune based on the story possibly to follow a thread from Sergeant Pepper and his band. The article read as follows. Scotsman John Mustard, an exceptionally mean man, gave his wife only one pound in the year before they parted, a divorce court judge said yesterday. Mr Mustard, a civil servant, was also so mean with lighting and heating that he went far beyond what any wife could be expected to bear, said Mr Justice Rees. To save electricity, he would turn off the light while they were listening to the radio because it was not necessary to see in order to listen. And he would also shave and go to bed in the dark. The judge said he was at pains to explain that he came from north of the border where carefulness was part of his upbringing. He added, his conduct affected her health and made life unendurable. The judge granted 55-year-old Mrs. Frieda Mustard, a deputy headmistress, a decree nisi because of cruelty by Mr. Mustard, who lives at Old Parkview, Enfield. Mr. Mustard, 65, denied cruelty and alleged that his wife deserted him. The judge rejected that allegation. The judge said he did not believe that Mr. Mustard was being vicious or unpleasant toward his wife, but there was a menacing quality about him to which his wife was particularly sensitive. Very probably following on from the journalistic approach he had taken to songwriting in 1967, having written songs based on cornflake adverts, articles about holes in Blackburn, a fairground poster and a child's painting, it's not difficult to date this composition as coming from the same period. Me and Mr Mustard consists of just two verses, and in this version, the beginnings of a chorus. The song, as performed here, is even less complete than the demo recorded at George's bungalow in May 1968. The chord sequence starts off in a predictable fashion, 
hanging on to the one chord of E before shifting up to the obvious five chord of B, but then after the sleeps in a hole in the road line, the sequences make an unexpected journey up to the flat seventh chord of D, effectively shifting the song to its relative minor key, a distinctly beatly touch. It repeats this key shift idea at the end of the verse during the mean old man phrase, going from the one chord E to the flat six chord C, again in the relative minor to the five chord of B. So whilst Mean Mr. Mustard is a fairly slight piece of work, it has enough melodic invention to keep up your interest. However, despite pitching the song three times, once for the White Album, once for the Get Back Project and finally for Abbey Road, John was dismissive of the song's potential. They're only finished bits of crap I wrote in India. John then tries out the middle section of Don't Let Me Down on piano, perhaps just to see what it sounds like. And then a brief bit of boogie woogie. everyone he's been absent for a little while he says John responds fine thanks as he will on his solo release look at me a year after this come on Harrison says John lift us out of the mire the morning's momentum is being lost George starts All Things Must Pass, John plays trills on piano and doubles George's vocals at the end of each line. The work they've done on harmonies has paid off. Baseline is still quite experimental. questions George about the guitar passage going into the bridge. 
John starts singing Balls Like Me, a Jerry Lee Lewis song. Another song that the Beatles learned by flipping over a hit single, Falls Like Me was the B-side of Jerry Lee Lewis's 1958 release on some records, High School Confidential. Written by Jack Clement and Murphy Pee Wee Maddox, Falls Like Me became a top 10 country hit on its own. John would return to the song for a film performance in 1972 at the Hotel Miyako in New York, accompanied by Yoko's vocalisations. He follows this with another, You Win Again. First released by Hank Williams and his Drifting Cowboys in 1952 and written by Williams himself, the version that John was most likely familiar with was once again the B-side of a hit single. Great Balls of Fire was the hit released in 1957 by Jerry Lee Lewis. Here choosing to back a rockabilly tune with a country classic. Lewis would go on to carve out a career as a country artist during the lean years of the 60s. song says John a reference to his publishing company George asks if they want to do bathroom window despite being fairly close to finishing an arrangement for all things must pass it's a shame because this is the last time the Beatles will perform the song at Twickenham and they'll only briefly try it at Apple later in the month In contrast to Paul, who, as we know, is always very assertive about what he wants everyone to play, George, as much as John, is far less comfortable with the producer-arranger role. However, where John's reticence is offset by having Paul and George lending their more advanced musical knowledge to the collective effort, George is unable to get the same level of support from his bandmates. George's stay in Woodstock with Bob Dylan and the band had inspired him a great deal and led to a flurry of new songs, all of a quality at least equal to Lennon and McCartney. But as, but it was the collaborative spirit of the band that most inspired him. Early in these sessions, George is enthusiastic and relates several anecdotes about how great the members of the band are. For George, this looks like a way forward. Each member of the Beatles bringing their best ideas to each other's work. 
Very quickly, though, George becomes disillusioned. His comments to Paul on the 6th about, I'll play what you want me to play or I won't play at all if you don't want me to play, effectively mark the end of any aspirations George may have had that the Beatles could work in this collaborative manner. Now when George brings in a song, he's met with disinterest from anyone apart from Ringo. He was clearly wounded by the Beatles' complete dismissal of Hear Me Lord on the 6th, and this morning, I Me Mine was given fairly short shrift. Perhaps, with all things must pass, John and Paul were of the opinion that George had fulfilled his quota for the project. George, on the other hand, is uninspired by the lacklustre rehearsals of this song. But as we can see here, his surliness only makes the rehearsals drag on. To his credit, John is the most vocal in getting the band back on track, but George is acting a little like a reticent teenager, being forced to do something he doesn't want to do. During the first rehearsals, he becomes bogged down in the detail of what guitar to play, and he spends a lot of his time throughout this rehearsal tuning his guitar, a problem that never seems to bother Paul, whose bass is frequently out of tune. The issue isn't all George, however, but the Beatles' dysfunction at the time. John is less able than the others to come up with elaborate musical ideas, particularly on a keyboard instrument, which he is less adept at. But it is John who finally fixes the problem with the vocal harmonies, which George has so much difficulty articulating. Paul, on the other hand, is brimming with ideas, but following the disagreement with George and his own feelings of not being supported, is very cautious about taking control of anybody else's arrangement. His only suggestion that they start the song with the hook is quickly abandoned. Once again, the power vacuum left by removing George Martin from his producer-arranger role has created an unequal partnership in which Paul can push his musical ideas quickly and efficiently, John can arrive with a kernel of an idea and have it knocked into shape by George and Paul, and George, despite needing as much input as John, is left unsupported and unable to properly articulate what he wants. Since George has been bringing in new songs almost every morning, the problem with this rehearsal may simply be that having played through their most complete songs this morning, all upbeat rocking tunes, George's All Things Must Pass just doesn't fit anymore, and George realises it. Glyn can be heard in the background asking if they want it on tape. Now he has the recording equipment sorted. You hear John answer in song, OK by me. What? Uh, than the rest for a change, urging them on. on Paul asks John if he wants to stay on piano for this song. He then explains the chords. Diana chords in A. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's A to D minor, G to C. Hold on. Interesting that Johnny's confusing bathroom window with two of us. He confused it with I've Got a Feeling previously. He must associate all these songs with Paul. John messes up the piano part immediately. The sound we're getting is the feed from individual mics, not from Roy Mingay's boom mic. So this is pretty much what Glyn is getting on tape. George thinks it should be faster. John suggests this should be done on electric piano. Paul counts off another run through, but faster. Once again, the contrast between how he leads rehearsals and how his bandmates operate is dramatic. The energy returns. for yes another run through again faster than the last one more time a bit faster Glenn seems to have mixed John's piano out completely. John jokes, you've got the right string baby but the wrong Yoko. A reference to a Carl Perkins tune of almost the same name. Should we have lunch? Luncheon. 
Should we? Why not? It's lunchtime. Aside from losing momentum on All Things Must Pass, it's been a productive morning. Okay, let's adjourn for lunch and we'll meet again after. Boogie woogie. Boogie woogie. Says the bass man, says Paul, who is playing through a Fender bassman amp. The green sticker from its box has been attached to the side of the speaker cabinet, but it will soon find its way prominently onto his Hofner bass. Black sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir, yes, sir, no bags John starts to sing Mr. Baseman by Johnny Symbol before drifting into Barbar Black Sheep, a traditional nursery rhyme. The Beach Boys had used a similar play on words on their Beach Boys party album right before launching into Barbara Ann. Michael asks if there was a song called Mr. Baseman. John gives him a rough rendition as they walk off to lunch. And that's as good a time as any to leave it for now. And that's it. If you want to support the show, you can leave a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod. That's W-O-D-P-O-D. You can also interact with me on the socials, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, plus my Gmail, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please like and subscribe and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thank you.